Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Philosophy for Our Times is brought to you in partnership with the New College of the Humanities a university-level college offering undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in the heart of London. NCH pride themselves on offering unprecedented access to a world-class academic faculty. Philosophy students at the college are taught by some of the foremost scholars in the field, and one-to-one tutorials create a personalised teaching experience. Choose your major and minor for a unique combined honours degree and study the NCH Diploma to widen your appreciation of the world in ways you'd never thought of before. Go to nchlondon.ac.uk for more information. Think better. Think NCH. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers to debate today's biggest ideas. Yeah, I think when you think about cultural differences, too often we've attended to these things as though they were purely kind of anthropological or sociological, and we've neglected the extent to which they at least reflect differences in, in thinking as well. This week on Philosophy for Our Times, we're joined by Julian Baghini, who takes us on a whistle-stop tour of how thinking differs across the world. How does philosophy shape places and culture? And what can we learn about people across the world by first looking at the philosophies that originate from the cultures they are part of? From the concept of harmony in Confucianism to Western individualism, we are joined by co-founder and editor of The Philosopher's Magazine, author of The Ego Trick and his new book, How the World Thinks. Please let us know what you think, subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode, and give us a rating as this helps other people find the podcast. Back now to Julian Baghini, who hosts this week's episode. So a little bit about how this book got written, because it's, it's interesting in itself. I mean, OK, so I, I, I'm a doctor of philosophy. I have a PhD in philosophy. And so, you know, I'm licensed to philosophize, et cetera, et cetera. But um, what's quite interesting about the education I've had is that although, you know, my titles say philosophy without any qualification, as a matter of fact, there, there is a huge qualification. You know, the, the philosophy I've studied was all uh, Western philosophy, and actually only a part of that. There's a whole story about how, depending on which university you go to, you either um, completely ignore or do a lot of uh, modern continental European philosophy. So there are even divisions within that area of, of Western philosophy. Now, this is something which, all the time I was doing philosophy and even editing the magazine, uh, wasn't really much commented on and it certainly wasn't considered problematic and I think that was because there's a fairly straightforward assumption that what goes under the name of philosophy in other parts of the world such as China, India, golden age of the Islamic period and so forth um, are kind of interesting you know we're not saying people shouldn't study them or there's no merit in them but it's just a very different thing to philosophy as we know it 
in the Western tradition, which is basically about argument, reason, evidence, and so forth. Whereas a lot of this um, other stuff is apparently, you know, too deeply tied in with religion, tradition, superstition, and so forth. And so actually, you know, there's, there was kind of a, just a, a perfectly, a, a willful uh, ignoring of philosophies from the other part of the world as being just not what we do. And in a way, you have to sort of see how that, that could sound like a horrible prejudice but in fact, you know, it does make some sense. When I was editing the Philosopher's Magazine, we did try sometimes to have some articles on things like Chinese or Islamic philosophy. But what we often find, found was that it didn't really make much sense to us. It did seem to be a different kind of, a different language, a different kind of way of thinking altogether. It's not something that really fitted easily into the tradition that we knew of as philosophy. And so we happily kind of ignored it all. And rather belatedly, I began to kind of uh, question whether this was right. I thought, okay, w whether it's philosophy as we know it or not, surely there must be a great deal which is of interest in some of these other traditions. And I think part of the, part of the problem is that, you know, you can't just kind of pick up a text by someone who's writing in a very different tradition and understand what's going on in it. On in it, you know, there's a whole kind of a background of assumptions and methods and so forth. You need to kind of get inside the tradition in some way. So, the idea of this book was not to try and attempt some completely comprehensive overview. And one reason for that was, I think it's not very helpful if you just read Confucius said this, Avicenna said that, whatever it might be. It doesn't really get you into the different ways of thinking. So, although it has it might seem to have a very immodest goal of being global and covering huge traditions. It has a rather more modest goal of trying to get an idea of what you need to understand in order to begin to understand other traditions, right? And so that I thought was interesting in its own right. You know, it's, if we're interested in philosophy, it's interesting to know philosophy as it's practiced in other parts of the world. But as I got into the project, it also became obvious to me that this was not just of a purely academic interest to those into philosophy. When I spoke to people, because of course there is no expert on the world's philosophies, it's too big a subject. You have to, I had to approach this project as a kind of philosophical journalist, you know, speaking to a large number of experts in different fields and trying to get out of them what were the key, the key points. When I spoke to these people, all bar one, funnily enough, um, would agree completely with the idea that understanding the classical philosophical traditions within a culture provide an insight into that culture today, right? Now, I mean, to give you a few examples of this, I, I, I did quite a lot, I was lucky to do some traveling for this, but um, you go somewhere like the Alhambra. The Alhambra is, you know, this marvelous uh, building in Granada, uh, built at the time of the Islamic golden age of Al-Andalus, you know, when the Islamic uh, the world extended into southern Spain. And of course, it's a remarkable building. But when you look at the building, to make sense of the building itself, you really have to understand something about the thought in the culture behind it. For example, this idea of all the, the symmetry, there are lots of symmetrical shapes, lots of kind of elaborate patterns. All these things are reflecting the fundamental unity of both God and the universe, which is a very central tenet 
of Islamic thought. Also, the idea of the fact the Alhambra is not a religious building, but it contains a great deal of inscriptions praising God and also Quranic verses. And that's because there simply isn't a distinction between you know, the secular and the sacred in, again, classical Islamic thinking. The idea of the, there being a separation is itself something which is perhaps distinctive to us. So you can kind of like, um, you know, in order to sort of like really understand culturally and historically what's going on, Understanding something about the philosophical tradition helps. When I went to China, I passed... Uh, in Chufu is the city where Confucius came from. And like many places in China, you know, it was what was until quite recently a fairly small city is like, you know, being like a whole new one. East Chufu is being built. And I went past this huge housing development and uh, there was a slogan for it. There was an English translation of it. Life in Confucianism... I live in Confucianism, life is harmony, which was an interesting kind of slogan for housing development. Now, have you ever seen a housing development which quotes a philosopher on the side of it in the UK, I wonder, right? So this, this tells you a few things. First of all, Confucianism, millennia old. Um, so first, first of all, it tells you something about how actually China sort of like has a very deep sense of its long history. You know, Confucianism has been a very continuous tradition through modifications for millennia, despite the fact that, of course, during the Mao period in particular, Confucianism was officially repudiated, but it never really went away. There are very deep roots. These philosophical traditions actually have very deep roots in the culture. And the slogan, life, in, life is harmony, or live in harmony, is significant. I'll come to that in a minute. Harmony is actually one of the central conceptions in Confucian thought and ethics and politics. And actually, I had sort of knew about this a little bit beforehand. I, I wondered whether this was something that scholars were keen to point out, but actually had no impact. In China, speaking to Chinese people, even seeing advertisements for housing developments, you actually find that harmony is indeed uh, key to the worldview of China, even today. And so if you, if you can understand harmony and that concept in its Confucian context, you actually understand better China today. It's reflecting something about, about the culture, the way in which uh, selfhood and individuality is actually uh, understood across all of East Asia, in which there is that much greater sense of the extent to which the individual exists in relation to others, and that's kind of inseparable from your own identity. Yeah, I think when you think about cultural differences, too often we've attended to these things as though they are purely kind of anthropological or sociological, and we've neglected the extent to which they at least reflect differences in, in thinking as well. A lot of the way the Western thinking has become rather functional, actually. We tend to refer to things by their functional names, baby-changing area, right? Um, actually, you know, the fact that this is called the loving service area reflects something that in, in China still... There is a lot of importance, again, on that relationality, but also, you know, filial relations, family relations, the duties and obligations to members of the family. So, so deeply, that's even the kind of language that's used to point to a sign. So these are just examples. But I think, you know, the, the basic sort of thesis I want to try and convince you of is that actually uh, understanding cultures isn't shouldn't just be a matter of like sociology or anthropology understanding the sort of philosophies the ideas uh, are, are helpful and useful as well you can argue about cause and effect do the philosophies just reflect the culture or do they help shape it i think it's almost certainly actually a bit of both and there's no simple answer 
But whatever the line of causation is, as I said, everyone who's an expert on these things always agreed, understand the philosophy of the culture a bit, you understand the culture itself a lot better. Okay, now there are a few things that you have to avoid when doing this. I just want to just briefly go through these, what are called deadly sins of comparative philosophy. Um, exoticizing is one. You know, it, it, it's very easy to end up saying, oh, well, you know, the Chinese, like the Japanese do this, or whatever it might be, in, in such a way as to make them sound thoroughly sort of alien and other, in, in a, you know, in a, in a nice way, not in a critical way. But I think this is this is always some kind of mistake. What you, I think, really learn, what I, what I personally at least really learned by this sort of journey into comparative philosophy, is that first you have to kind of have this balancing act really between being truly open to the extent to which other cultures think about things differently, but not so exoticizing them that you become, as it were, incapable of understanding that in terms of your own culture as well. Um, this will become clear a bit. So this relates to the other two things I want to whiz through. Essentializing is, is one such thing. So again, you don't want to have this idea that, oh, the Chinese are like this, the Indians are like this. I mean, that's not the case. A lot of people are so afraid of making those crass generalizations that they kind of refuse to make any generalizations at all. Actually, you know, speaking about this when I was still working on it, I actually got somebody very, very angry who hadn't read the book or had only heard about two minutes about it, but it took offense to the very idea I might even be talking about Indian philosophy. It was just Indian philosophy is too, gen too broad, it's too diverse. How can anyone talk about Indian philosophy without reducing a whole subcontinent to one simple thing? Well, the answer to that is, of course you don't do that. But the point is, in recognizing the fact that you can't essentialize or you can't overgeneralize, it remains true that cultures have general characteristics. There are certain general characteristics of Western philosophy for all its diversity, which tend to distinguish it from other traditions of philosophy. And the same is true of Chinese and Indian philosophy. So we shouldn't be afraid of, as it were, trying to sort of identify uh, the general recurring features in an intellectual tradition as long as we don't make the mistake of being too reductive and too essentializing and that goes back to the exaggeration point really is you, one shouldn't exaggerate either differences or similarities uh, one of the nicest ways of putting it that i've come across is that what you tend to find actually when you look at differences is that what is background in one culture is foreground in another and so forth when you come across an idea which is central in another philosophical tradition, you normally can relate it back to your own. The real difference is partly it may be understood in a slightly different way, an importantly different way, but also it's just this whole point that um, what is perhaps marginal or not pro attended to greatly in your own tradition sometimes has a greater place in another. Now, of course, time's short. I'm just going to run through two such ideas and try and get a grip of them. It is an interesting fact that, uh, in terms of the traditions I look at, the three sort of greatest, I guess, are those of India, classical China, and uh, the Western tradition starting in 
ancient Greece. And it is interesting that they all kind of began pretty much at the same kind of time, independently at different times of the world. Uh, the roots of transmission are quite interesting. The, the Buddha came in quite late in the Indian sort of like tradition. The, the, the Vedic tradition goes back much older than that. But of course, that, that was the one which was exported most, came through China, all of East Asia, Japan, and so forth. Um, Western philosophy, actually, is often neglected, also often forgotten that its route to Europe did come actually largely through uh, the Islamic world. A lot of the translations were, were done in the Islamic world before it came revived in, in the West. But no time for that. I want to move on to this idea of harmony. Harmony is one of the most interesting concepts. I think, and it's certainly essential. Everyone would agree, I think, that it's a really central place in Chinese philosophy, uh, particularly Confucian tradition, but also to a certain extent, Taoism. As I say, it is ubiquitous. You hear it if you read English language, Chinese newspapers. The idea of harmony is often appealed to. The Chinese Communist Party uses the word a lot, but I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute because that's slightly problematic. Um, in the forbid if you've been to the Forbidden City in Beijing, you've got like the Gate of Supreme Harmony, the Hall of Supreme Harmony, the Hall of Central Harmony, the Hall of Preserving Harmony. You get the idea, right? Harmony is a pretty important um, concept. So what does it mean? Now, harmony, I think, in our kind, I think if you, if you were to ask a common sense view of what harmony means, I think we tend to assume it, it's about a certain kind of uh, perhaps uniformity, a certain kind of passivity. And, and also, if you look at, you know, ancient China, Chinese culture, one also might think it's actually a rather self-interested thing. You know, harmony is about preserving elites. And it is certainly true that uh, traditional Confucianism is quite hierarchical, very hierarchical. So that's a kind of aspect of harmony you might think is, is unpleasant. But actually, harmony is, is, in its proper sense shouldn't be about oppression or the uh, keeping dissent and disagreement under wraps. Um, harmony actually is all about difference. Harmony is not about eliminating difference. It's about actually having productive difference. So what makes a nice soup is not that it's just one ingredient all blended together and served up on your plate. What makes it a good soup is you have the different herbs, spices, vegetables, meat, broth, and so forth all together. Similarly, music is often used as an analogy for what harmony means. Harmony in music requires more than one instrument, more than one notes, but they're all working together in that way. So the concept of harmony, properly understood in the Confucian tradition, is not about sameness at all. It's about the, all the parts working together in a way which creates this overall um, harmony. Now, the idea of each part doing its role is also very significant because in part of the Confucian ethics, uh, Roger Ames, who's one of the great contemporary scholars of, of Confucian Chinese ethics, describes it as a role ethics. Now, that's quite significant because in Western ethics, we tend to un uh, emphasize the universal aspect. You know, you, the duties you have as a human being, uh, the, the, the categorical imperatives, all these things. You know, moral rules are moral rules. They apply to everyone, etc., etc. In role ethics, actually, the right thing to do, the thing you're morally obliged to do, depends very much on what your role is. So the duties of a ruler are not the same as the duties of a subject. The, the duties of a parent are not the same as the duties of a child. The duties of an older child are not the same as the duties of a younger child, and so forth. Now, again, if you just transplant, 
you know, the way that works in Confucian times to now, we would find it objectionable, too hierarchical, misogynistic, and so forth. But the basic principle of our moral duties depending upon our place in society to create harmony in the whole is not such a a wacky idea at all. In fact, it's something that I think most of us recognise to be true, but it's just somewhat in tension with our kind of idea of ethics as something um, universal. And the same thing about dissent. Uh, Actually... Uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, this harmony is all very well, but it's hierarchical and it means that people are just told to keep in their place. Again, the, the great Confucian texts um, say that you have a duty to remonstrate. A son has a duty to remonstrate with his father if he sees him doing wrong. Uh, Confucius himself was an advisor to a lot of rulers and would, you know, tell them as nicely as possible where he thought they were going wrong. So it's, it should not be about... Um, simply being obedient, doing your thing and and being quiet. Now, as a matter of fact, of course, that is often what happens. The concept harmony is, you know, in its Confucian purity, a very good one, a noble one, and its application can be greatly abused. The Chinese Communist Party often talks about harmonization. And of course, what it's doing is it's using that term because that has resonance in the culture. But what it's often promoting is indeed a kind of uniformity and obedience to the state. Now, the fact that these concepts get abused and can be abused doesn't mean that they are themselves corrupt. You see the same thing in the West. In the West, I think uh, notions of liberty and freedom are the primary values. Right. In exactly the same way, though, they also get abused by political leaders. People will stand up and claim to be defending freedom and to be defending liberty when they're not necessarily doing it. Right. But what's important is if if you're a non-Westerner trying to understand the West, you have to understand that freedom and liberty is kind of creates the what I'd call the rhetorical space in which and the ethical space in which political and social debates have to be conducted. Everything has to be justified in those terms and defended in those terms. Harmony does the same kind of work in China. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Now, apart from the fact that I think this is extremely useful and helpful for understanding China. And I don't claim to be an expert on China, but I think, you know, people who are would say that this is one thing you need to understand to try and get why it is that actually ideas of Western liberty and democracy and so forth haven't been as popular in China as people might have expected them to be. It's because it's not that the Chinese don't value liberty and freedom. It's not like this alien to them, but actually Harmony is, is, is something which is valued arguably even higher. And there can be a conflict between the two. There is a very real concern, in, particularly in a nation as huge as China, 
that if you unleash too much liberty and freedom and so forth, it might destroy the harmony of the whole. Now, you might think that's a self-serving argument from an oppressive government, but actually, if you think about it, a lot of people used an argument like that to explain why they thought it was so misguided to go into places, to intervene in places like Iraq or Libya or so forth. The same kind of thing. People who are freedom-loving people in the West nonetheless often were of the belief that though freedom and liberty were great things, if you unleash these forces too quickly, too violently, you can just effectively lead to a breakdown in a society, in a culture, which wouldn't do anyone any good. And in that sense, the sort of maintaining the harmony, for want of a better word, of a, of a nation can sometimes be preferable to maximizing its freedom. The other interesting thing about this example, of course, though, is that we're not talking about either ors here, right? I think that we actually recognize, although we primarily talk about politics and the values in terms of liberty and freedom, we also, of course, understand that harmony is important. But I think the point is maybe we could do, we should be more aware of how important it is and be able to articulate it as a value. Because actually, I think that what happens is if you just put all the emphasis on democracy, will of the people, freedom to choose and so forth, you know, maybe sometimes that does lead to a breakdown in harmony, which we don't really like, you know. A referendum, which gives people a simple binary choice. Um, it might seem like a good way of empowering people's democratic choice and so forth. Actually, what it really does is that it empowers a small, the, 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 the small majority that wins over the minority, potentially creating much greater disharmony. So, you know, I think, again, it's not just useful for understanding uh, China. It's actually a good way of perhaps um, trying to sort of, we can, we can learn from these concepts, apply them to ourselves. Now, if I had longer, I'd talk about a few other things in more detail, and I'm not, I'm not going to, but just, just a sort of little teaser taster. Um, basically, the book is called A History, but it's not a linear history. Um, it's, it's arranged thematically around again, certain key ideas, which I believe are the, the, the ways in, the things which give you the greatest way into different cultures, ways of thinking. And uh, one of the most interesting I found is around ideas of selfhood and identity. Um, across pretty much all of East Asia, a lot of people who theorize about these things talk about what they call the relational self. Okay. Now, again, this is you can see this is a matter of emphasis. We live in an individu individualistic society. I think that's uncontroversial. That's not to say, of course, we don't appreciate the fact that we also exist in relations to others. You know, no man is an island is one of the most quoted lines of poetry ever. So, of course, we recognize that individuals are not purely atomic units and they exist in relation to others. But the emphasis is generally on the individual rather than the emphasis being on how we relate to others. In certain cultures where the primary conceptualization of the self is relational, that makes quite a bit of difference to how people live and how they see themselves. When you understand the self primarily as relational rather than atomistic, it's not about subsuming your identity to a collective. It's simply about being more attentive to the ways in which who you are and what matters to you 
only exist in relation to others. It's, it's basically pro-social activity rather than uh, things around the, the, the uh, diminution of the individual. There's this film, I was flying out of Tokyo, I noticed a lot of people were watching the same film on the, the plane. There's a film called Orange, which is based on a, a manga. And it was a teen romance. And without going into details, the extraordinary thing about this teen romance was not only that the plot uh, hinged around two suicides, which is not exactly what you'd get in Hollywood, but the main thing was that you hardly ever saw the, the key couple together by themselves. That the whole relationship was part of a, a broader uh, friendship circle. So I think, again, understanding that emphasis on the relationality of the self, um, it not only helps you to understand what, from the, what might otherwise seem to be a, a lack of individuality in, in a lot of other cultures, but it also helps us, I think, to kind of again, reflect upon our own and to recognize that, you know, we, and we're not purely individualistic. We also value relational aspects of self. Maybe our balance isn't quite right. Maybe we have moved too far in one direction and maybe actually we would benefit from um, perhaps, you know, tempering our individuality a little bit and trying to focus a bit more on... Um, the relationality of it. Um, a, th a third, a third thing which I'm going to say virtually nothing about though is, is just just to introduce the theme. Um, concepts of time are very interesting as well in different uh, parts of the world. The the dominant sort of Western conception of time is a linear one, uh, which is often thought to be linked actually to our Christian history because the Christian story is one which is a very linear narrative of creation uh, and then final judgment and so forth. It has this eschatological um, character. In most parts of the world, in most parts of history, conceptions of time have been much, the emphasis, the primary emphasis has been on the cyclical, the idea of the, the cycle of the seasons, cycles of birth and, and, and so forth. But also very interestingly, one of the sort of set of traditions I did look at, not as much as some of the others, was actually the philosophies that are transmitted orally through uh, oral traditions. Okay, now, until recently, there's virtually no work done on that at all. It was really left to be the domain of anthropologists, and it was seen as kind of, you know, folk wisdom, folklore, not philosophy proper. There are increasing numbers of people who are actually taking ideas transmitted through oral cultures seriously as philosophy. And one of the most interesting aspects of that is concepts of time, how we relate to time. And although, of course, the, these traditions are extremely diverse, Again, there were a lot of remarkable commonalities. And one is that actually the notion of time is perhaps not as important as notions of place, actually. Now, time and space, of course, we, we now recognize as being part of one four-dimensional whole. And it, and it's, but it's very interesting to find out more about how in, in certain cultures that, that sort of like link is perhaps not just something that theoretical physicists kind of come up with, but it's kind of lived as well. And people's sense of belonging to a place is, is, is primary, and it sort of grounds their idea of their own histories and narratives more than even temporal things. So, that for example, a lot, in a lot of cultures, when you die, the important thing about your death is that you are returned to the place at which you came from. You know, it's often important to be buried where you were born or, or, or near there. Okay, now, um, just to wrap up, because I'm already uh, running over, um, I just wanted to sort of like highlight what I thought were three real benefits of 
broadening our philosophical palette to increase other cultures. One is this idea, you, know, you might know this old parable, it actually originated in Buddhism, but it's become most associated with the Jains, of the blind, the blind men and the elephants. So the idea is the blind men are shown around this elephant, and of course, depending on which bit of the elephant they're feeling, they take the animal to be a very different beast, you know, hard and stony, soft, or whatever it might be. Uh, the, the moral of the story is that in order to gain the most accurate, objective view of anything, you need to look at it from a variety of different perspectives. And I think that's often what comparative philosophy helps us to do. It gives us a different angle on what we have been looking at from one angle. So it doesn't so much provide an alternative or competing account. It rather provides a, a different way of looking at it, which helps to build up uh, a greater, completer picture. Another thing it can do is that sometimes we kind of assume there's a problem. We talk about the problem of free will, the problem of the self, the problem of knowledge. And what we actually find is that when you look at uh, how other cultures approach things, other intellectual traditions approach things, there are perhaps different questions that they consider, that they take to be primary. So there's not one question of the self. There's not one question of free will. There are actually a, a number of different questions. So that kind of disaggregating, breaking down what seems to be one question into many other questions is also useful. And the third point is really much more about ethical and political. Um, this is represented by a number of different roads, rails, and even birds. But actually, when it comes to the most important question of all, perhaps, which is you know how to live, that there are there are just more there is more than one way to exist. There's more than one way to live, but these things are in a sense not necessarily always compatible. This is the pluralism of values. So, for example, I think the clearest example I can give of this is that you can live a good life in a way which is very individualistic. I think that's possible. But in doing so, you give up a lot of the goods associated with a way of life which is more embedded in that of a community. Right? That's a, a very simple one. But I think in many other ways, we discover that there's, there is more than one way to live. It doesn't mean that anything goes. Some ways of living are abhorrent and should be objected to and so forth. There, are, there is more one way to live. And that if we only kind of look at one tradition, we confine ourselves to that and we um, rob ourselves of that thing. That's the Whistle Stop Tour. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you like what you heard, then please do subscribe. Make sure you tell everyone you know. And of course, join us next week for another episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Thank you.